If you're a runner who's felt held back from the joys of running due to an injury, surgery, or diagnosis, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Legacy Running, where we'll be sharing return to run info, insight, and inspirational stories to show you how to win back your happy place and build your legacy. Thanks for joining. Now on to the show. All right, so hello everyone. Welcome back to Legacy Running. I am so excited for today's episode. We are joined by Dr. Gary Chines. He is a physiatrist in Bellevue, Washington at Lake Washington Sport and Spine. Hi, Dr. Chimes, how are you doing today? Hey, it's great to see you, Sarah. Thanks for having me on. So excited to have you. I feel like you are going to be a really popular guest on the show because you have so much knowledge and wisdom about women runners with hip pain. Absolutely. Um, And I'm trying to keep track. How long have you and I known each other? It feels like it's been, has it been about six, seven years? Um, Actually a little bit less. I started practicing in Kirkland in 2019. Um, So really not too long. Okay. Yeah. But I think I've been working with you pretty much since you moved to the area and it's really a great relationship to have. Yeah. Yeah. You're a wonderful clinician. And I always joke that I send all of my tough cases to you. Yeah. Um, Can you go ahead and just tell us a little bit about yourself? You can go personally and then also professionally, like what what you do, your practice and kind of explain what physiatry is. I don't think a lot of people know really what that is. Sure. So personally, I'm a 50-year-old guy, originally from New Jersey, live in Redmond now, married, have two young boys. Uh, My background uh, athletically is my primary sport was swimming. Uh, I liked wrestling better, but I was kind of a pudgy kid and I'm in a weight-restricted sport. That's not a great characteristic. Uh, And then in college, I was a club-level triathlete at University of Wisconsin. Uh, my, you know, areas of like athletic interest tend to be, you know, in triathlon, running, swimming, uh, martial arts. Those are probably like my primary sports interests, but I see athletes of all types. And then, uh, I think one of the things probably relevant for some of what you do, I have a twin sister. So my PhD was in sports biomechanics, particularly looking at female overhand throwing athletes. But a lot of my focus has been on sex differences. So Men and women are different. They have differences yeah. in terms of biomechanics, in terms of hormones. And, you know, those differences manifest certain ways in younger people. Like, you know, young women might have issues with relative energy deficit syndrome. Then you have older age ranges where you might be dealing with things like, you know, pelvic floor insufficiency or, you know, menopausal issues. Yeah. So I think, you know, part of being a good musculoskeletal physician is to know how are men and women differently, especially over the different phases of the life cycle. And then uh, in terms of, you know, the type of physician, so, you know, went to college, I was a double major in math and zoology, uh, did a combined MDT PhD program at Stony Brook in Long Island, uh, then did internship and residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation, uh, which is sometimes called physiatry or physiatry. And then I did a sports medicine fellowship at Northwestern. And then I was in academia for a while. I ran the spine center at the University of Arkansas, ran the musculoskeletal sport and spine fellowship at University of Pittsburgh for five years. 
And then, you know, I hit 40, had my midlife crisis, moved out here, joined my partner, Jaron Hyman, and I've been out here for a decade now. Oh my gosh. I did not know that you have done all of those things. Um, that is phenomenal. You know, and I think it's, you know, useful. I think that, you know, you probably are seeing this with your own career. You know, I've realized that, you know, you can have a 10, 20 year plan, but really life has like these five year segments and yeah, you, you just learn something from each of them and hopefully bring that forward into, you know, evolving over time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I never thought I would be specifically working with women runners with hip pain, but here we are. Yeah. Um, of all those segments, what part was your favorite teaching, uh, treating, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I definitely, you know, view myself a lot as a mentor. So I know I, I was I was pretty well known nationally in academic circles, and a lot of people were surprised when I left academia because I had a you know really strong reputation for educating residents and fellows. But for example, uh, one of my my current medical assistant uh, was her last day yesterday, and she's moving on to medical school. So uh, you know and. You know, I just think getting to be part of her, you know, a mentor to her and her journey into becoming a physician has been really valuable. You know, I have my first medical assistant out here is now a physical therapist in the community. You know, so getting to be part of his journey. You know, I have a, another resident, uh, another former medical assistant of mine who's now an orthopedic surgery resident. So I think that uh, I like mentoring. And I think that, you know, for me as a physician, that's a lot of what I value the most. So the uh, the relationship, like I had like a really good moment uh, kind of early in the pandemic where there's a patient of mine who's a really bright guy, he's done very well in tech. And he you know, just had me over his house, we were talking and I, he, he definitely found the advice I was giving him about musculoskeletal medicine helpful. But he's like, yeah, he actually gave me some really good life advice mm. you know, in the process of working on a book about being middle-aged. And I, I think that, I I find the relationships the most satisfying when people find that the guidance I'm giving them is helping empower them making better decisions about how to manage their own life, whether mm -hmm. you know learning to run a marathon or it's how do they negotiate you know the death of their parent while they're trying to you know meet all their health responsibilities. You know I I find that very satisfying. That's awesome. Yeah, there's like a mentoring component in both being a resident met resident fellow mentor and then just guiding patients as well yeah. um i would love to get into talking about labral tears and fai uh now i would say a huge reason that i started my like specific practice is that i was finding women ages like 25 to 50 uh developing labral tears and or fai or them coming to fruition for those uh, people and just having so much uh, discrepancy and uh, different treatment options available to them. Um, so I would love to just hear like what it looks like for you to kind of diagnose and then treat a, let's say, active gal that comes in with hip pain. Sure. And I'll be curious because I'm wondering if we even, uh, you know, one of the things I like about working with physical therapists is that I think that we have adjacent, non overlapping skill sets. So I'm curious if we end up, you know, diagnosing FAI the same way. But you know, I always like to work from a chief complaint outward. And one yeah. thing I always try to encourage patients to do is to separate their symptom from their hypothesis. Yes. So I'll, you know, it's fairly common as someone come in saying, "I have hip pain from FAI." Yeah. And we want to know, like, can you point where it hurts? So even just with the term hip, 
hip in doctor English and hip in human English may not mean the same thing. So yeah. when I hear the term hip, I'm thinking of the femoroacetabular joint, which is really in the front. Uh, yeah. to like I'd say, I'd say even most of the time when I have people coming in with quote unquote hip pain, they're pointing at the outside of their pelvis, which might be like a trochanteric region yeah. or they're pointing at their buttock. Well, let's assume for the moment we're talking about symptoms in the front. You yeah. know, I try to create a differential diagnosis process of what are the things that could be going on. So it can be, you know, FAI, femoroacetabular impingement. It could be a liberal injury. It could be hip osteoarthritis. It could be a hip flexor issue. When we talk about the hip flexors, these basically four hip flexors. You know, most time if people are saying without qualifying, they're referring to the other psoas. But it could be their rectus femoris. It could be the tender fasciolata, or it could be the sartorius. It could be a pelvic insufficiency fracture, which is, I think, an important one. Yeah. Um, also, have to start thinking about things that are not obviously musculoskeletal. Like it could yeah. be a ovarian cyst. It could be a presentation of pelvic floor insufficiency. So, um, you know, sometimes it's bad things like cancer. So, you know, yeah. uh, so you know, one of the things that's important to me as a physician is like not forget that I'm a doctor and like consider the medical things that could be going on as well. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as I'm trying to go through my process, I'm I'm pretty extreme in how structured my visits are. So yeah. when I look at both my positive and my negative reviews, uh, it's, you know, both are referencing my assistance and structure. And I like to go through a very structured process of timing, uh, what location is it in, which movements provoke it. I spend a lot of energy on those things to try and tease out and a lot of the questions are, you know, just trying to rule out like a plasma diagnosis. You know. yeah. yeah, I actually totally agree. I am also extremely structured in my exam, almost to the point where I have to kind of pre-warn the person, hey, today is really uh, like assessment day. Like I need to gather this information. And if I kind of gauge that they are more like maybe... I don't know, emotional about it and like can't handle the full exam, then I'm like, okay, we might have to break this up into two days because a true exam for me with explaining diagnoses of what I find probably takes like an hour, hour and a half to really go through everything. Um, and luckily for me, like when patients come to, to me, I can be more musculoskeletal minded because I mean, I am a physical therapist and not a, um, not like a medical doctor. But in the back of my head, I do have to do my due diligence and screen absolutely everything to ensure, okay, is this coming from the lumbar spine? Does it not have musculoskeletal components? Like, is it something like cancer um, that I need to send out for? Or like, is this a bone stress, you know, injury that we need to be more concerned about? So yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, um, I, and, and to toot your horn a little bit, I think you're unusually good about recognizing scope. So I think that like you're an excellent physical therapist in doing what you do, but I also think one of the things I've admired about the way you practice is you're pretty good at recognizing, I'm 90% sure I know what I'm dealing with here, but that 10% is concerning enough. Let me get somebody else to help me out with making sure I'm ruling out. Is this an L3 radiculopathy coming from the back? Is this a stress fracture? I think you've been unusually good about that. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I think it's important because we just don't, I mean, we don't have time to waste and I don't want anyone to go down the wrong hole, wrong rabbit hole with um, treatment. Um, let's say that you have suspected that someone uh, does have a labral tear or FAI. What is your next step? Sure. 
So, you know, I would define, so like FI, FAI and labral injuries are related. So FAI, so stands for femoroacetabular impingement. So the femoro there is referring to the thigh and we're talking about specifically the femoral head, which is the ball, the ball and socket joint. And the A is acetabular, which is the socket. So when you think about joints of the body, all joints are going to have this balance between mobility and stability. Okay. And some joints like your shoulder are very mobile, but not stable. So the femoral acetabular joint is the most extreme joint in the body in the sense that it is very stable, but is not very mobile. Yeah. Now with uh, hip morphology, there are standard shapes that a hip should have. You know, there's some variation, but some people will have bony anatomy that will limit the amount of movement that can have. And, you know, there's different types. So there is a cam deformity where the femoral head is uh, deformed in a way where it uh, normally the femoral head has like a concavity that comes off of it along the femoral neck. So then when the hip rotates, there's clearance space. And maybe with a cam deformity, it looks more kind of club-like and it doesn't allow for that room. There's another subtype called a pincher where the socket has like an overhang and then you can have a combined form. So like, let's say, you know, let's say I get a referral from a physical therapist or the patient comes in and they don't have a lot of mobility. One of the things I want to know, is that limitation because of soft tissue or is it because of hard tissue? Yeah. yeah. Now, beyond the, you know, the, the joints are stable because of the shape of the socket, but the ligaments that make up the capsule of the hip are also the stiffest ligaments in the body. In particular, there's a ligament in the front called the uh, uh, ligament of Bigelow or the iliofemoral ligament, and it's an unusually stiff ligament. Mm -hmm. So let's say somebody's having like some restrictions related to ligaments, that's something that you can work on and over time get greater mobility. But if there's like a piece of bone that's like in the way, there's going to be an upper limit to how much you can mobilize them. Yeah. Now, let's say you have somebody who has femoral acetabular impingement. One of the problems is that you have bones rubbing on things that you may not want it to. Yeah. And they can have a couple of different forms. There are two types of cartilage within the joint. There is a hard, smooth cartilage on the end of the bone called hyaline cartilage. And it is uh, you know, very similar to like the surface of an iPhone. It's hard and smooth. And it's designed for handling a lot of load. Uh, osteoarthritis has a few different forms, but a lot of what we think of osteoarthritis, which is also known as degenerative joint disease, isn't related to injury to that hyaline cartilage. And then they have a second type of cartilage called the labrum. And the labrum is what's called a fibrocartilage. It's rubbery, kind of like the earlobe. And it helps to maintain a suction to keep the hip well in the socket. So in particular, one of the things that, you know, we are concerned about is that if somebody has FAI, femoral acetabular impingement, and they're grinding tissue, what are they grinding? And one of the structures that we're in particular concerned about is grinding of the labrum. Yeah. And one of the things that's, you know, one of the reasons that this is an area where it's really important to have like excellent physical therapists, especially the ones who specialize on it, is a lot of the treatments for FAI and labral tears haven't been great historically. Yeah. Uh, so for example, for surgery, there are surgeries for it, but it's still amongst the lower success surgeries that happens in orthopedics. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's an option, but it's not a home run option. So yeah. having non-operative options like physical therapy can make an enormous difference. Yeah, yeah, that is definitely for sure. Um, I would say, um, I remember seeing my first liberal tear as a new grad and I was like, I have no idea what to do. We did not learn this in school. Um, and it took a lot of mentoring to get there. 
um, and to learn like what are good options um, when someone is either pre-surgical um, and post-surgical. And I would say it's, uh, yeah, it's been a hard line to learn or hard line to walk and to learn how to like actually get patients better with this. Yeah, so if I can circle back on the diagnosis a bit for a moment. So a lot of it comes down to imaging. So uh, for imaging, one of the things is x-rays can be quite helpful. This is one, a lot of times like when people order x-rays in the musculoskeletal world, they're doing it as a hoop to jump through for insurance purposes so they can get an MRI. Uh, this is one of the circumstances where the x-ray is genuinely useful. There's a type of image called a standard AP that's standing, and that gives us some information about the shape of the hip. It doesn't really directly visualize the labrum. Um, I do a lot of musculoskeletal ultrasound in office, which can be quite wonderful. If I see a labral tear on ultrasound, it's a meaningful finding, but part of the labrum is deep inside, and you know, ultrasound is better than MRI for detail on superficial structures like hip flexors, but it's not as good for the labrum. And then there's the MRI where you're using a magnet to take a picture. A regular MRI is actually not a great fit for um, looking at the labrum because sometimes when you have a tear of the labrum, because the labrum is like hugging the head of the femur, you don't see it. So we do a variation on the MRI called an MRI arthrogram where we first inject contrast into the joint and then do the MRI. And that serves two purposes. One is it just lets you see about the labrum the other thing, something that I do, not everybody does, I think most people don't do, is I always also ask if they put numbing agent into the joint. The reason that's really valuable is that just because someone has a labral tear, that doesn't mean what's actually causing their symptoms. So, you know, somebody who uh, has an MR arthrogram, there's numbing agent in the joint. If they have the labral tear, but the numbing agent makes no difference on their symptoms, that makes me a little bit skeptical that the labrum is even the source of the symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I just would also make this caveat because this might be really helpful for you know the patients of yours. I, I definitely have had people who try to kind of triage their own care or maybe have like pressure their primary care doctor into ordering the MRI for them. And they often get the wrong sequence. Yeah. So there's the nuances about, for example, you know, using lidocaine in your arthrogram. There's also like there's an MRI of the pelvis and MRI of the hip aren't the same image. Yeah. Um, and then there's also other sequences, like if I'm concerned about like a core muscle injury or sports hernia, I might order some special sequences. If I'm concerned about piriformis, I might order special sequences. So part of the reason to see a sports medicine specialist like myself, rather than just getting the MRI from your primary care doctor, is they might order the wrong sequence. Yeah, that's huge. I actually, um, yeah, I didn't really think about the the sequencing um, aspect of that, but the, uh, the numbing agent with the MRI is huge. The literature has largely shown that if you experience like a significant amount of relief, um, from the numbing agent as it's injected into the joint, then that is what is shown to have better results with surgery for the surgery. That's still kind of like a, a wash if it's going to be, uh, super effective or not so that's awesome that you do that yeah like like if any treatment whether we're talking about physical therapy injection surgery you know let's say i have a patient who doesn't get better i always want to ask you know two of the questions i'll ask is it did it not work because we had the wrong diagnosis or did it not work because we had the correct diagnosis but the treatment you know wasn't appropriate yeah. but a significant number of people you know i've had many people who had labral surgery didn't get better 
And ultimately, we start to suspect it really was, it was the labor wasn't the problem in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you speak on maybe if it's not the labrum, like it's like, let's say I have a label tear clear as day, it's right there. Uh, that's really not my pain driver. What are other things in the area that could be driving the pain? Sure. Yeah. So let's say, you know, you do the intraarticular injection within the joint. What are the structures that are within the joint? So the labrum is one of the structures. The hyaline cartilage is another structure, which is like the hard smooth cartilage of the joint. There's a ligament called the ligamentum teres, and then there's the capsule itself. So those are basically the four things that are getting numbed by the joint, and those are intraarticular. What is extraarticular? So the examples of things that would be extraarticular would be the hip flexor tendons. Uh, you know, I think in the literature, we'll see people refer to the iliopsoas as the most commonly affected of the hip flexors. I think the proximal rectumus femoris, which is another of the hip flexors, is at least as common. Um, you know, and I think that that's something where musculoskeletal ultrasound has been really helpful uh, to look at it because I think those are getting missed on MRI a lot. Um, but it could be any of the hip flexors. Uh, you could be having issues with uh, like the pubic bone region. So you can have, uh, you know, um, there's different terms for like osteitis pubis. Uh, there's yeah. a muscle injury, you know, especially anybody who's doing like lateral cutting sports like soccer or ultimate frisbee, that's something that you want to consider. Um, mm -hmm. And we, again, we talked about things that are uh, like gynecologic in nature. So people have like ovarian cysts would be another possibility. Uh, and then the back is another important one. So like upper lumbar herniated disc or radiculopathy could, you know, and then I, I guess pelvic floor would be another big one. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. I would say in my practice, those are the biggest ones that I've noticed is like upper lumbar, L2, L3 region, uh, the adductor even, adductor groups, uh, uh, tendon problems with those, and then um, pelvic floor as well. If someone is experiencing a labral tear, I'll find that a lot of the muscles like the hip flexors, adductors, pelvic floor are commonly like on guard and become over like yeah, I, that's that's a great point. Like, I think, for example, uh, a lot of people will put a lot of weight in as like, hey, I've been using a lacrosse ball and rubbing over my psoas and it's tender. And I'll tell you, it's rare that you have any people who aren't tender when you're massaging really. Yeah. So, they, so A, it's been, you know, just go to the other side, probably is a little bit tender as well. But B, if you're having tenderness in your hip flexor, that might be guarding the structures that are underneath it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I which think, can be, yeah, good. Which can be pretty painful in, a, in and of itself. That guarding is like, it's it's not comfortable. Yeah, and I think an important concept to recognize with the hip, um, there's a concept of somatotopic resolution. So resolution, if you think about like a photograph, is how close can two points be to one another and be able to distinguish that they're separate points. So um, somatotopic resolution is like, how precisely are you able to get feedback from a region? And the hip, even though it's such a large area, the density of pain fibers in the area is actually quite small. Like the tip of your thumb has more pain receptors than your whole pelvic region does. So I think people, when they have like intuitions about pain, like if you have a splinter in your thumb, you can localize exactly where it is. But the ability to distinguish between like the proximal rectus femoris tendon from your iliopsoas tendon, even though they're only like two centimeters apart, the ability to distinguish them is not that high. And I think that, I think one of the things that's really challenging with the hip is that 
people often don't have great intuition around the region, but they don't know that they don't have great intuition. Yeah. You know, yeah. Can I, can I uh, go on that a little bit more for a moment? Yeah. Okay, because like the other one of the big ones I care about a lot are uh, stress fractures, and I think they get missed a lot. And I think that there's underimaging, and most people have no idea what their pain tolerance actually is. So I find, um, and I'm not great at guessing. I think you know, I back when I was in training, they used to like treat like it was a act of Congress to order an MRI, and I think we were dramatically under ordering them. And now that I order them much more liberally, I will say I am often quite surprised and to the point where I don't even necessarily, I order it because I know it's a possibility, but, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are stunned to find out that they have like a huge single stress fracture. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge, especially in, uh, women, women runners as well. Absolutely. Hormonal aspects going into that. Yeah. Uh, so I would love to talk a little bit about treatment options for people that have uh, been diagnosed with, let's say it's a labral tear and it is a symptomatic labral tear and that's kind of their main driver. What are some of your options that you're giving your patients? Yes, I think physical therapy is really critical. I do think finding someone like you who has experience with runners and you know a demographic similar to them is useful. Uh, that might seem, oh, well, everybody does that, but not necessarily. Like if you have a clinic that's taking care of like a lot of Medicare patients and dealing with, you know, basic mobility of people following a stroke, their ability to help with a 28-year-old runner is not going to be high. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of things that can be done there in terms of, you know, just manual techniques and long axis distraction that can help with the capsule there's the different models like the Gary Gray model or some of these other models that are trying to mobilize the, you know, iliofemoral ligaments. So I think those are things that can make a big difference. Uh, I find a lot of patients are very skeptical about it. Uh, if you've had bad experiences with that to um, don't write off physical therapy, it might be the specific physical therapist. I actually just think another point, like make sure your physical therapist was actually a physical therapist. So it's fairly common that someone has quote unquote physical therapy, but they're actually seeing a personal trainer or they're seeing an athletic trainer working out of a chiropractor's office or they're seeing a PT assistant. And if you're getting great responses, fine. But if you weren't getting great responses to PT, then it turns out you actually never worked with a physical therapist. That's important to consider. Uh, so that would be, I guess, where I usually am starting. Um, I think that some of the things that I consider, uh, you know, I do a lot of guided injections. I think as a general rule, I think it's smart to start with injections before surgery because there's, you don't have the same irreversible component. Um, actually, before I forget, because also you had given a case and I might be getting specific on one of your earlier podcasts, you talked about somebody with a hip issue, went through a bunch of procedural stuff. I think they may have been having like ankle dorsiflexion issues. And so, you know, a lot of times when people are having problems with their hip is really downstream of other things going on in their connect chain, you know, so, or maybe I reverse me, it was an ankle person, there was a hip issue, but the point being that just because your pain is coming from the hip, often correcting mechanics in like the ankle or the knee go a long way. So you're not asking the hip to do more than it was designed to do. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. That's a huge part of PT. Yeah. So, um, you know, so uh, one of the things I often like to do from a procedural standpoint, uh, one of the techniques we use is a hip dilation, 
where we just under ultrasound guidance will direct the needle into the capsule and we'll just expand the joint with as much fluid as it can handle. And usually I can get probably about 12 milliliters of fluid in there. And what that does is it just stretches the capsule from the inside and allows the physical therapist to do more mobility than they would otherwise. You know, and if you have somebody who has femoroacetabular impingement, which is kind of squeezing on the labrum, if you can open up that space, even by like 3%, that might be enough that the labrum is not grinding anymore. Yeah. So that's a good starting point for a lot of people. Um, and then I would say the next category, one of the techniques I'm moving away from, but I'll mention it's sometimes helpful for limited circumstances is corticosteroid. Uh, we typically use trimcinolone. So when people talk about cortisone shots, um, I don't like using it a lot of times because it does tend to make the hip degrade more over time. So, uh, but it is, tends to be helpful in the short term. So the circumstances where I might use that is that if somebody has like a high leverage event, like they had a trip to New Zealand for six weeks that they had planned, and that is like a life-changing type of trip and feeling better on that trip would make a big difference for them. I, I, I am willing to use cortisone, but I'll say, just know this probably is gonna make things worse in the long-term. So willing to have the short-term benefit for what might be worse you know, in the long term. And then you get into the category of what I would call orthobiologics. Some people call regenerative medicine, and that's going to be things like platelet plasma and uh, micronized fat. And the product we use there is something called lipogems. And I can go into those more if you would like me to. Yeah, I would love to. I uh, I think the literature now is mostly pointing away from the cortisone injections, um, really leaning to like one and done, like if you need it and then done. Um, and then now turning more to like orthobiologic. So yeah, that would be awesome. And I think the one and done, I, I don't think is the right answer on that either. I think like you have seen rapid progression of osteoarthritis from one. So there's nothing magic about the number of one. It's, you know, the doing one, you know, it also can affect like bone density as well. Um, so you know, a lot of times runners are going to be women who are going to be prone to osteoporosis down the road, uh, especially, um, you know, uh, you know, if you're a runner who has a like, history of like bulimia or anorexia in the past, they might be lower bone density in the, in the baseline. Yeah, but anyway, uh, so with plantarch plasma and uh, micronized fat, the idea behind this is that your body does have some capacity for natural healing. Um, uh, as an aside, I have like a number of patients who are mechanical engineers, and one of the things I'll talk to them on the difference between mechanical engineering and biomechanical engineering, because the principles of like load, creep, stress, strain, those are true whether you're dealing with like a sheet of aluminum or dealing with a hip joint. So, you know, the reason biomechanical engineering is its own field is that the tissue has capacity for self-healing and that there's more variance in the tissue. So to me, as a physician, biomechanical engineering is the study of mechanical engineering on variable materials that have a capacity for self-healing. Mm -hmm. And the mechanism for self-healing is often going to be things that are in the blood. Uh, so your blood has three major constituents. There's going to be red blood cells, which carry oxygen, white blood cells, which fight infection, and then the platelets and the things that bind and aggregate to the platelets, those are going to be what helps with healing. So you cut your skin, blood rushes to the area, it's mostly going to be the platelets and the things that bind the platelets that are going to help with that healing capacity. So if you have an injury like a labral injury, what you can do is you can take blood out of somebody's arm, 
you spin it down with a centrifuge to get the highest density of the healing factors, and then you would inject it into the joint under guidance so they can be the interarticular structures. So that's the idea. Um, people ask often ask, like, does it heal the whole thing? Does it get it back to a pristine state? And it does not. Uh, what it probably is doing, though, is healing the margin of the tissue, and the margin's often where a lot of the pain is. So one of the ways I conceptualize that is like, I remember a couple months ago, I cut my finger in the kitchen and I had like a gash on the tip of my thumb and the margin that was pretty painful. So I actually took out like a um, cuticle cutter and kind of trimmed that margin. So it was a cleaner margin and it hurt a lot less. Yeah. And this is often like what orthopedic surgeons do when you ever hear about like an arthroscopic cleanup. They go into the joint, they use, you know, specialized tools, but they're basically trimming the margins to make the healthy margin at the edge of the tissue. So a lot of what you're trying to do with PRP is just to have a healthier margin of the labrum. And a lot of times that can be quite you know, helpful for improving pain. Yeah. yeah, I've seen really great success with PRP, stem cell, uh, we'll just say orthobiologics uh, in like younger athletes. And when I say younger, like 25 to 50, I've just seen really great results with patients that have done that. And sometimes it's taken a couple of rounds um, yeah. and have felt fantastic after. Yeah, I, I think like it's, you know, like every tool, I think if anyone has a stated success rate above 70%, they're probably lying either intentionally or not intentionally. Um, I think a lot of times they lose track of their dropout. So I think 70%, you know, maybe getting to the 80% range, but like it's definitely not like a 99% success rate. Um, now the stem cell, you know, stem cell is kind of a, uh, we have to be careful. Like the Federal Trade Commission has actually gone after clinics for using stem cell because nobody's using isolated stem cell lines, nor would you really want to. Um, so to understand what a stem cell is, a stem cell is a cell that has the potential to differentiate into something more specific. So the ultimate stem cell would be a fertilized egg. You know, a man and a woman, they populate, the sperm uh, merges with the egg and then fertilizes the cell. From that one cell, an entire human being to can grow. Now, you actually don't want anything that's too close to that state because like if I'm injecting something into the hip, um, I don't want it to turn into like an eyeball or hair or spleen. Um, and that may sound ridiculous, but there's a type of tumor called a teratoma that you typically see in like an ovary or a testes. And you may have heard of like women who have like, you know, a ovary the size of a grapefruit, they take it out and then you slice it open and there's literally like eyeballs and teeth in there. Um, they're really kind of gross. Um, and if you think about why does that happen, it's like, well, an egg cell is a cell that is capable of creating half a human being. So, you know, when we're talking about stem cells in the context of musculoskeletal injury, we want something that's further down the differentiation cascade. And typically we're looking for what are called mesenchymal stem cells. And those are the cells that have the potential to differentiate into tendon or to muscle or to ligament or collagen. Okay. Wow, that's fascinating. I actually did not, I did not know that. Yeah. Um, are there, you can say anything else about orthobiologics, but I'm curious if there's any circumstances that you're like, okay, you like, we've exhausted this option. I think it's time for a surgical consult or are there any like, like with traumatic labral tears, are there any times that you're like, I think it's time for surgery. Uh, what is your thoughts on when to, to pass on to a surgeon? That's a good question. Uh, I'm trying to think. 
like there are definitely contexts and structures outside of the hip where I will go earlier. So like, let's say in the knee, like somebody has a complete ACL tear. That's something where I'm going, like, I can try to do these other things, you know, but you're going to do better with surgery. And I'm pretty, you know, you know, frequently, you know, I, I often have people who are seeing me for certain circumstances and I'd say, I can do this. If you've already made up your mind not, not to do surgery, I'm willing to have the discussion that you really should go to surgery. Yeah. For labral tears specifically, though, I, I, I guess like a situation, like sometimes when someone has a labral tear, they could have something called a paralabral cyst. Yeah. So let's say, I haven't seen this personally, but let's say you had an enormous cyst that was coming off of the labrum. Even if you had that, you know, like the issue is like, is it impinging on another structure? And even there, most of the time, I would try to drain it first. So uh, this is not an exact comparison, but I have like a patient, I've had a few patients. Um, there's a smaller secondary knee joint called the proximal tib-fib joint. And sometimes those will be unstable and get big cysts and they'll hit a nerve called the fibular nerve. Um, but even there, I just drain the cyst on an ultrasound guidance rather than, um, you know, having as a starting point to go right for surgery. Yeah. So, um, you know, so I'm trying to think, is there a context, like if there was a huge cyst, just like where that's located, it's not going to necessarily impinge and like hit a structure where, yeah. it, you know, it's, it's too far. It's not going to hit like the femoral nerve. So I think for most people, you know, especially also since the labral surgery is like, they're not awful, but they're not great either. I just think most people owe themselves the opportunity to try an orthobiologic first before they go to a surgery that's irreversible. You know, the worst case scenario is the orthobiologic doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've only seen it a couple of times where a patient has really early on considered surgery. And in both cases, they were really high level um, young athletes that were like about to go to college sports and just wanted their labor repaired before they walked through that. Yeah. I think that that's probably a mistake in most circumstances. I, and you probably have had this experience also, there is sometimes a tendency, you know, so you have like a continuum of aggressiveness. So like physical therapy, less aggressive than like needle-based procedures, it's less aggressive than surgery. There's sometimes a tendency to dismiss the less aggressive stuff. And, yeah, it's kind of cute what you do. Let me get the real thing. And I, I think that model doesn't apply for most musculoskeletal issues. I think it does for something, let's say like carpal tunnel syndrome. If you have severe carpal tunnel syndrome, the surgery has such a high success rate, has such a low complication rate. That's a circumstance where I think going and getting quote unquote the real thing and getting yeah. this redone makes sense. But with labral surgeries, again, like the success rates aren't that high. And, you know, I've definitely seen, you know, what you're describing, people getting ready for their college career, and then the surgery doesn't go well. And then they're, you know, some of them just never come back because, you know, like uh, I can think of a patient of mine who is themselves a physical therapist and had some surgery and she's having some long-term issues, you know, from, and I, I wouldn't even call it a botched surgery. I think it was just a surgery that just, it doesn't work because sometimes the surgery doesn't work. Yeah, it's definitely not the end all. I no. know. Um, do you have any considerations for clients that you have worked with that have the diagnosis of FAI or labral tear or both of them together? Um, they're, uh, I won't put these words in your mouth, but they'll, yeah, they have that. And then they want to continue running and being active long-term. Is there any uh, secrets that you have about that? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess, um, you know, I always wanted to know what people's goals are. So, you know, in terms of running, for example, you know, I, I always like to ask people, like, why are you exercising? Like, what is it that you're looking to get from it? Are you doing it for long-term cardiac prevention, overall health maintenance, for aesthetics? Are you doing it because it's your mechanism for stress mediation? Are you doing it for weight control? Are you doing it for diabetes control? And I think when I ask, I try to do it as much as a safe space, because a lot of times aesthetics is part of it, but people are often weary to mention that that's why they're doing it. Because oftentimes, like, there's ways you can get them to meet their goal. But is there, so, for example, like, let's say I have somebody who's running, like, 70 miles a week, maybe running 25 miles a week is an option for them. You know, and that's part of what they can be considering. Uh, you know, I think there are things like that, you know, liberal injuries will tend to be, I guess in general, running injuries tend to be worse when people have, you know, large excursions of their motion. So a lot of people do better just by modifying their cadence, you know, running a shorter stride length, higher cadence. So they're they're not taking the hip to that range of motion where they're grinding it as much. Um, so, I mean, those are some of the things I'm thinking about. Um, yeah, but I think, you know, if I'm having a runner, you know, they've gone through good courses of physical therapy. They have done some modification in the running form, slumming persistent pain. Uh, let's say they've already done a joint distension, really make a difference. That's where I might be thinking about the worth of biologics. Um, can I touch on the micronized fat a little bit? Because I didn't go into that fully. Yeah. So the idea behind micronized fat is, in, you know, when people talk about stem cell, that's often what they're talking about. But, you know, it's probably about 1% stem cell and it has a bunch of other things in there. Um, it is better than platelet-rich plasma. Uh, so I often tell people when they're asking about lipogems, versus, which is the micronized fat, fat product we use versus PRP, it's kind of like the difference between a Lexus and a Toyota. Like a Lexus is definitely better than a Toyota, but oftentimes a Toyota is perfectly fine. A couple of the things I like better about lipogems, it has you know, it has more healing factors in it, but also has more of a cushioning effect. It's also more viscous, so it tends to like if there's a crevice it has to get into, it tends to get in there and stick a little bit better. Uh, we've seen better, you know, we're always kind of cautioned by like the FTC, like trying not to like claim cartilage regrowth, but I will say I've seen cases of cartilage regrowth with the lipogems. So like it's, yeah, I, we've you know, done pre and post imaging and seen it. So um, like it does have more regrowth potential. So cool. So cool. Is it better to get those younger or does it, does age have an influence on that? Yeah. In general, the younger you are, the better you are. Um, one of the things I've learned over time is that we almost always do procedures at the wrong time. Is it okay if I elaborate on that? Okay. So an experience I had in 2019 is, is I got quite sick with pneumonia. I was sick enough that I missed a year of, I mean, sorry, not a year, a month of work. If I look back on that episode of pneumonia, had I known on day one that I had the sniffles, that that was gonna cause a bad case of pneumonia, I would have taken azithromycin right away. But I didn't do that because it's ridiculous to take azithromycin every time you have the sniffles. So we use time as a tool to determine whether you're going to do the intervention in the first place. But by doing so, you make things less efficacious. So I would say that's true for, you know, physical therapy, you know, like, you know, you know, you hurt your ankle. 
if you know on day one that that day that you hurt your ankle, you're going to need physical therapy. The right time to go in is right now. But you often like you know give it a week or give it three days, and then like okay, this isn't getting better. Let me call Sarah. Similarly, if I know on day one that this labral injury is one that's destined to be getting lipogems, the time to do it is now, you know, outside of other logistic factors. You know, so doing earlier is better, both in terms of younger people do better than older people. Not that older people don't do well, but they younger people do better. And then early in the injury is better than late in the injury. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, I like that point. Anything else that you want to touch on for women runners with hip pain? Any other thoughts? Yeah, I think just a couple things about how to be a good patient. I think that's probably important. Uh, I think one of the things is to, we talked about, you know, try as much as you can to separate data from your hypothesis. Yeah. You know, often I'm dealing with like really bright people who've read a lot and they want to share what they think they figured out on their own. But like, I don't get a chance to unhear your story. So, you know, if you're leading with what your suspicion is, it creates a discomfort because what happens if I disagree with you or I just want to consider another possibility? I don't want to offend you. And so I find like a lot of times when I look at people who've been misdiagnosed, it's because the patient came in with their own hypothesis and the physician didn't want to be aggressive in re-challenging that. So I think that's one thing. Yeah, that's really good. Um, I think that, you know, just as a doctor needs to create a safe space for a patient to feel comfortable talking, I think that a patient needs to create a safe space for their clinician to work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like, you know, when you're dealing with female athletes, you know, you want to look for things like relative energy deficit syndrome, sometimes called female athlete triad. So, like, it's important that I can ask about things like eating disorders, um, you know, talking about history of abuse that can be related. If you're having sexual dysfunction, that's something where that can be related to female pelvic floor. So if I'm talking to a patient and they're guarded on, you know, just basic things, like if I'm just, you know, trying to get their demographics and they're guarded and talking about their relationship status, they're not comfortable talking about who lives with them at home. I'm not going to get into their sexual history, you know, so creating a safe space where the doctor can evaluate them. You know, similarly, allowing the doctor to examine the area that hurts. So you would be surprised by how many patients do not want the doctor to look at the area that hurts. And, you know, I, I get that, you know, it's a sensitive area and you want to be discreet in the hip region. On the other hand, if the doctor can't actually look at the area that hurts, it makes it harder for them to do a good job evaluating, evaluating them. Yeah, that's really fair. Um, yeah, I really like those points about not coming in with the hypothesis, because if there's, you know, something going on, let's say it's really driven by the back and then that's the diagnosis and that's the exercises that we're going to do, or that's where the treatment's going to go. Um, you as a patient are probably not going to believe that you're going to get better because it's not, you believe it's coming from your hip. Right. Right. Yes. Um, well, I think that's all I have for us today. Um, thank you so much for coming on. I learned so much from you. Um, if we want to get in contact with you, either local or uh, just want to learn more from you, what is the best or what are the best ways to do that? Sure. I mean, there's our website, which is www.lakewass.com. Uh, we have a YouTube channel. So if you put in Gary Chimes, Lake Wasps, we have a bunch of videos uh, with some videos on lipogems, about PRP, about tendon injuries. 
so those are probably the best resources to look for us. Uh, okay, awesome. So I will be sure to link those in the show notes. But other than that, thank you so much for coming on. And um, I look forward to chatting with you soon. Okay, great. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Legacy Running. If you haven't already, please share this out so more people can start to build their legacy. If you would like to work with me, Dr. Sarah, check out strategywithsarah.com and get access to schedule a time to chat about returning to run pain, injury, or fear-free. There's more info on how to connect in the show notes as well. I look forward to talking with you soon. And remember, how you show up matters.